Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both, the podcast all about how our multiple passions and interests shape our identity and our lives. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I am a musician and therapist in Los Angeles, and I also happen to be your host. This podcast is produced by Laura Studeris, and for this season, we've partnered up with Under the Radar magazine. If you like what you hear, you can hang out with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at WNB, the podcast. And if you really, really like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We are under Why Not Both podcast. When you join our Patreon, you get a whole bunch of really cool behind the scenes stuff and you get to chat with us. And that's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope you enjoy our interviews. For this special bonus episode, we got to spend some time with Carmen L., otherwise known as Gay Hollywood. I hope that you enjoy our chat. Well, welcome to Why Not Both. Thank you for having me. Thank you for like thank you for making the time to to hang out on Zoom. <laughs> it's a pandemic. All I have is time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say all we have is Zoom, and I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, thank God for Zoom. I was thinking about the the like Spanish influenza and I was like, nobody had email or text or YouTube or Netflix, like none of that. None. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I find that there's almost like, I don't know what to call it other than the test for neurodivergence where someone brings up like, so about all the details of the Spanish flu, has anybody, did anybody consider it like all of my friends that I, I'm ADHD and potentially autistic and like, I need to get tested for that. But basically anytime someone brings that up, we're like, is this code? Is this the code that we all know now in the pandemic? No. <laughs> <laughs> the way that I'm like with my stim toy as you're talking. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's about right. <laughs> the way <laughs> the way that my friend and I figured it out was that all of us in history class heard about this event and then it was just like glossed over and our little sparkly brains were like, "Hold up, hold up. That sounded important." <laughs> 100% we did not move on from that. No, no, none of us thought that millions of people died over the course of several years was like an incidental blip before like you moved on to something else. Absolutely not. And there's another layer, I think, maybe with Jewish people as well, like as we both are, where there's like an intergenerational trauma, I think around well, every Jewish person I know is a total hypochondriac. And then there's also this added fear of like losing everyone you love. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's been, it's been a very charged two years. I was trying to explain that inter, uh, intergenerational trauma response because my partner um, he jokes that he's like, well, according to 23 and me, I am, if I round up 12% Ashkenazi Jewish. 
<laughs> I'm like, oh, buddy. Um, because like my mom will leave me messages about like not parking close to shrubberies because who knows who could be lurking in them and like things like that. And he's like, where does this like fear of stuff come from? <laughs> totally. Every, yeah, my mom used to say when I was growing up, it's not you I don't trust, it's other people. As though the entire world was just waiting to for like chaos and destruction to descend on me. Like there was the, the safe grocery store where I could go get candy and the unsafe one. But the unsafe one had the good candy and I could never go there. I... I think you probably saw on my face that I was like staring into the middle distance of like, this is like real in 5D. <laughs> yeah, it's yep. real. Yep. There were the safe streets to bike on and then the streets that were like not safe to bike on. And I'm like, and looking back on it, I'm like, we're all like the unhinged drivers just like, yes, I shall go down this street, but not this other street. It feels a little OCD, and I also have OCD where there's sort of, um, there are rules of engagement in the world, and they feel arbitrary. Like, yeah. why was this one subway stop not okay, but I could get out at the one before it and the one after it? Like, what happened? <laughs> like, what news headline was read six years prior, or you know, where does the information come from? It gets collated and then there's a sort of decision and it doesn't change your whole yes. life. Yes. Like, have you ever discovered like the roots for those? Because I discovered one for my mom that like still cracks me up. And like, when you discover like the origin story of like this one, like, you know, fear or quirk, sometimes you're just like that, that was the, that was it. Tell me. Like, I was like, I, I must tell you. Um, essentially, um, I had wanted to replace the flooring in my home for like forever, um, because it was carpet and I have, I am, I basically rolled like a zero in continent, uh, like in constitution, essentially. Like I, I just, that is, it's very annoying. I'm literally allergic to everything. It's like trees, grass, quinoa, uh, why mold, like all, all these things. And so like carpet just harbors things, no matter how much you vacuum. And there's only so much you're like, I want to vacuum my home constantly. Like that's annoying. So I wanted hard floors. And so for like years, cause I, I owned my home with my parents. I was just like, I want to redo the floors. And my mom would get like angry when I would talk about the floors. And finally I was like, did they, did, did hardwood floors like hurt you? Like, did they do something? Did like, <laughs> what happened and finally I found out that like she lived in a home with hard floors once and ended up getting a dog hair embedded in her foot that she didn't know about and thought it was like a blister or a bunion or something and they went she went to the doctor and like they told her like what it was and so she was like it must have been from it must have been on the hardwood floor and I was like, so because you got a dog hair caught in your foot once at some point, I cannot have hardwood You've got to vacuum twice a day for the rest of your life. It's like, how did we get here? <laughs> like, 
That's a good podcast. How did we get here? A story of Jewish mothers <laughs> and their and their rules. Yes. And like, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like sometimes these things lurk inside me and I, I find them like that phrase, like it's not you. I don't trust it's other people. That phrase has come out of my mouth and I'm just like, <gasps> get back in there. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, how do we break the intergenerational trauma code? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. In cool news, I became a rogue artist. That seems to have helped a bit. Are you the first artist in your family? I am. It's awesome. weird and fun. How about you? I am not actually. Both my parents are. My dad is a guitar builder and my mom was a filmmaker. And, and she has also written a couple books. Now she paints. Yeah. Okay, so you had a blueprint for this. What was that like? And was it like a good thing to have a blueprint or was it like, a, oh no? <laughs> I think that it was both. My diplomatic answer is it was both. It was really fantastic to have such an artistic home growing up because it helped me to not fall prey to certain like metrics of progress as a kid. Like I really struggled in high school because of anxiety and I was pretty much agoraphobic for a while. And, and my parents um, were fine with me dropping out. They were like, you don't need high school. And I think other families will right. really put a lot of pressure on like academic achievement. Though I also think it, it did give me some, I don't know, maybe limiting beliefs because the arts are such a difficult industry. And I watched my parents really work hard and get, you know, knocked down a few times. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely didn't like go into it with a ton of like confidence or like hubris. I was like, all right, it's, I guess I'm just going to try also. <laughs> yeah. They're like, it's tough out there, but also I'm going to do it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm going to maybe do it. <laughs> and I have, I have maybe done it. <laughs> You're like, I have medium okayed it. <laughs> yeah, I have definitely done that. I was just like, uh, tell us what you have medium okayed. What is on your landscape currently? <laughs> like actually, like right now? Yeah, yeah. Like what what have you been what have you been up to? Well, uh, like in like an overview or like recently, like the past, you know, year or two. Like what what could be interesting is even like overview and then the last year or two and then contrast the two and and yeah, because that's been a really weird and interesting thing about the this, like this, this, this podcast situation. Right. Um, is that it started in the prior times uh-huh. and then like radically changed in the during times. The 2020 pivot. Yeah. Cause like it started as like, well, what how is what we do in our passions? Like, how does that inform our identity? because I was like, well, I do 12 bazillion things. There's got to be other people who do 12 bazillion things. So I started talking to people and then I was just like, oh, this kind of changes how people view themselves. Well, that's really interesting. And then like everything collapsed and we stopped being perceived. 
Um, and so it was like, Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And now we're in the screaming into the abyss, you know, of our own individual landscapes. Yes. 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 We're in the like spoiler alert. The other thing I do is I I'm a therapist. And so like it was a 10 out of 10 clients crying week. Like even clients who don't usually cry were like crying this week. And I was just like, everybody is not doing so well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, the Mercury is in Gatorade everywhere. The details, they are different, but the mood, it is the same. Mr. Omarion has made an impact. My my partner is also a psychotherapist. So I I had a, a bit of a glimpse into that career over the past two years as well. And I was like, oh, here's, it's an interesting industry and that it got 6,000% harder overnight, pretty much. Like, I was joking initially at the beginning, like, haha, no one ever gave me like a weekend workshop and being a therapist in a pandemic. And now I'm just like, where was my weekend workshop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, thank you for being there for your partner during this, because I don't know if your partner is similar to me, but after after a day of sessions, I do two days of sessions and then like the other days I just do other stuff like this. Um, but by the end, I'm like a tiny potato. Yeah, it's it's real. It's real. And it's a really important job that you all do. So yeah, it's very, it's like humbling watching somebody do that work during a pandemic. I've, I've tried to be supportive. We've definitely had some really rough times as you know, you navigate, especially in a queer couple, um, the sort of like overly developed caregiver muscle and the ways that that can take away from your individual like wellness I guess for lack of a better word yeah Yeah. and it's it's hard with the layers of like one the profession and then like you said a queer partnership of essentially like when I don't know how to put it other than when when your brain just runs out of ram like your startup disc is full my partner says that to me on bad weeks and I'm like okay I'm like trying to get it's like it's it's I guess kind of like the neurodivergent like I have no spoons where it's just like there's just no room and on those weeks if I'm like having panic attacks or my OCD is really bad and I've got like weird kitchen rules I shouldn't say it's weird about my stuff but you know I've got like extra needs yes that's where you know we both get to this point of being like yeah yeah that's it's interesting at the start of this I was in um like a accidental pod of friends um because we were all together right before everything shut down and we were like well wait like if any one of us has it like all of us have it there were four of us including me and we were also like why don't we have a team that seems better than doing this solo Mm -hmm. um but it was really interesting because all of us are neurodivergent Mm. and so like I was joking for a while that it was almost like we were playing like neurodivergent hot potato where it's like, yes. <laughs> like, like a relay race yeah, like, maybe 
the day that like one of us had like different sensory needs than the other and like all sorts of stuff and it was like and then like when they would see me after session days like one of my pod mates like would try and like revive me like their act of care was to like try and like revive me by talking to me but I was like so done with talking and like then the other pod mate like picked up on the fact that I just wanted to like sit there and have like my hair pet and then we offered options for dinner. And then like after dinner, I could like person again. <laughs> like it was like, right. um, but that would be so hard because it's like, on one hand, you cognitively understand like, yes, my partner has kind of like tapped out. But on the other hand, your brain is like, I am full of weasels and gremlins right now. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Totally. And we, just because somebody else has a need, it doesn't mean that you your need doesn't exist anymore, but I think it can be really, really hard. And this is actually like a perfect analogy for my music career, which is simply that like, if you imagine like a a set of scales, like mm, everybody else was always more important. Like they got, Mm. you know, they got the favorable side of the scale or whatever. And so I don't know if that's like a childhood thing. I don't know if that's a undiagnosed autistic child like masking thing like the desire the inherent desire to make everyone around you comfortable yeah I think possibly because you feel that you are in some way inconvenient yes so that you know that can happen and when it when it enters the relationship dynamic it gets really sticky really quickly because both people tend to just sort of like subvert their needs for the other person's needs. Oh, you got a need. I don't have a need anymore. Like, never mind. Yep. <laughs> it's like, it's like the conflict avoidantness. Yeah. Oh God. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But from a place of love and, and yes. caring. That's, I wish there was a word for that because yeah, it's like, we're kind of shown being neurodivergent that like our, our needs are inconvenient when we're little, like, even if people don't mean to, that's the thing is even people who do care about us occasionally accidentally are like, well, that's sure weird. And we're like, Mm -hmm. Oh no. (laughs) Um, And so when you have a pair of that, it's, that sounds almost like spy versus spy. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that reference in a long time. Yeah, I relate to that definitely. And I've seen that occur where it's like two people who are so used to accommodating others. And like you said, like not accommodating in a malevolent way, but it's hard to unlearn that. And it's also hard to then balance that with like how to express your needs while respecting the others, while knowing that you're safe to do so, while sometimes being like, oh no, I don't have the spoons to meet your needs right now. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and when you compound it over years and, and decades, even it, it, that's where you find yourself kind of like traumatized and burnt out and not really sure why, like that's, that's sort of what that's, that's like a piece of what music has been to me, like pre pandemic, like Hmm. if you even want to go back to like the, like the overview or whatever, because I, uh, I, I started playing music really young because my dad built guitars so I started playing guitar like as wee baby and then dropped out of high school and my parents were like well you're not going to college so they bought me like a computer with garage band and I started to teach myself how to record and then joined some bands and 
started to just play shows and release albums and it kind of went from there um so from 15 to in my early 30s now like over 15 years we've been kind of doing this thing and it's been really great for the most part but I did have a lot of um I think barriers to succeeding that I didn't realize I had Mm. around things like travel I had a lot of anxiety like because transitions and change are really hard for autistic brains and so there's such a destabilization of your whole life when you're on tour like it's financial it's locational it's emotional every day is a little bit different you can't predict where you're going to eat or sleep or go to the bathroom or like any of these things and there's this sort of quiet I don't know quiet tragedy in circumstance because we don't realize what our circumstance is often it's like the air around us it becomes invisible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you might be having a really hard time but if it's all you've ever had you don't really know that it's hard right right it's like you don't you don't have anything to contrast it with Mm -hmm. exactly like without my diagnosis I was just having panic attacks like every day um but anxiety is something that everybody has. And so because of that, it becomes very difficult to kind of individuate within the huge umbrella that is anxiety. You'd say like, oh, I'm having a panic attack. And somebody would go, oh, I used to have those. Like, oh, I grew out of it though. Like, and then I'd have this feeling of like, I think we're having different (laughs) kinds of panic attacks, but yes. (laughs) I don't know. Like it wasn't until I was with my partner for a couple of years that they said to me, like, I don't know anybody who has more panic attacks than you. And I was like, oh, you're a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're like, all right. All right. Cool. 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 Uh Cool, cool, cool. That's all right. You don't. Oh, but I'm, I think that's, it's sad that it wasn't enough that all the years before I, I wasn't looking around and going, I'm pretty sure if this is a spectrum, I'm like on the extreme end of it. And that even if I did acknowledge that to myself, it still wasn't enough to ask for a different touring schedule or yeah. to ask for any kind of accommodation because it was a real culture of like, don't complain, be grateful be affable like people aren't going to want to work with you again and now that I'm in my early 30s I just feel like I don't owe gratitude to an industry that hasn't supported me yeah you yeah. know yeah and what you're saying bad I've never said that before no I'm just like yes that's the most California thing I've said in a while yes <laughs> what you're what you're saying about especially like touring and then the what just jumped out at me was also when you said like that you didn't feel that you even could ask for accommodation because in some ways it sounds like maybe you didn't even know how to articulate what it was that was bad about it so it's like how do you ask for like something different if you haven't had something different so you have no basis of comparison and you don't have like a framework of like 
what could be potentially different about it. Like Mm -hmm. a good friend of mine um, that I interviewed, um, I don't know if you've heard of the band uh, The Anchoress um, Mm -mm. out of London, my friend Catherine, um, she's autistic and is a composer and performer and producer and she's amazing. Um, but she was telling me that she was labeled like bitchy and things like that on tour because she did specify the things that make her feel comfortable. And also she has celiac disease. So it's like, there are certain things that she can't eat. She would get very, 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 very sick. And so it's like, but just like you said, that it's like this perception of you have to like be almost like a doormat. Otherwise people are like, how dare you ask for something? And she's like, I'm asking you to treat me in a way that will enable me to do my job that you've hired me for. Yeah. Like Like, disability is not a disability if the whole community is able to provide accessibility. Um, But, you know, when you grow up being the only one that you know, I used to say like, everybody else can tour. Why can't I? Or everybody else can play these shows without having panic attacks. Why can't I? And there was like, a lot of this sort of compare and despair thing happening from a really yeah. early age. So it can be, yeah, really like you get so used to thinking that you need to fix yourself because everybody else can do it. So the onus has to be on the individual to sort of conform. Right. right. Yeah. Like, and that's interesting, especially thinking about touring and when we were talking about the before and now the during, it's like, because in the during, we don't have to tour. There are so many other ways to be a musician that in some ways I feel were maybe not devalued, but de-emphasized. De-emphasized. Yeah, for sure. I was curious about that. I was like, have you been engaging in it differently? Because yeah, trying to be a touring musician under that condition, I'm like, no. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. In in at the start of the pandemic, I was voice acting a lot. And I was also um, doing a little bit of stuff for sync, like producing some music for commercials. And uh, I did a TV series as well. So it sort of felt like the answer, like capital T, capital A, like answer. Mm-hmm. It is, but, but, you know, like in thinking about what this podcast is about and like specifically identity I think that the autism diagnosis came in May, so it's relatively recent, and that sort of trumped the music in a way, or there's been a huge reckoning of, like, when you get a diagnosis like that as an adult, your whole life kind of flashes before your eyes in a way where you're doing a lot of recontextualizing, you're doing a lot of celebrating, a lot of grieving, a lot of raging, kind of everything starts to make sense and these new connections are formed and it's like a gift to be able to like process everything and also I realized how burnt out I am from the music industry so now I'm just like kind of mindfully sitting with the fact that right now like today this year I have no desire to write a song Sometimes I write a song, but I don't sit down like it's my job right now to write a song. I'm kind of re-exploring myself 
for the first time because I fell into music like it was a default, you know? Yeah. I was yeah. a guitar was put into my hands as a baby and then I dropped out of school and it was the only skill I had. And like, you know, 15 years later, here we are. So what does that feel like to be like, wait, I could be and or do and or embody something else? It feels really wild and beautiful and sad. It feels sad to like leave I, sometimes I think about it as like consciously uncoupling because mm. right now it feels like I'm not in to borrow a psychotherapy term. I'm not in like right relationship yeah. with music. Yeah. It's not, there's no reciprocity. It feels like I'm going to try and say this in a smart way. That doesn't sound like I'm just um, so <laughs> like, I don't know, bitter? Because I, I don't feel bitter. I think I just feel like a little bit pensive, like I'm reflecting yeah. on kind of my decade and a half of work. And I think that that's a natural thing to do. And we all have these moments where we kind of look back and it's been like, okay, it's been like, we've been doing this for a while. And like, how does it feel like it's going? <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> what do we want to change? <laughs> I like, you know, to be perfectly candid my Spotify earnings were a dollar 15 last month there's these moments where I think like imagine you were a kid and you really you wanted to be a banker and you took banker lessons and then you went to the Royal Conservatory of Bankers where you played your banker recitals and then you graduated and your job became like write a grant to fund your banking activities four times a year. Like there's no other industry in which people would like go to school their whole lives, graduate, and then start to like write these government grants. If you have that available, I'm in Canada, so I do. And obviously so many other countries don't even have that where you're basically like begging for money from a anonymous board to fund you providing a valuable service. What? That's yep. weird. It it baffles me that this is the position we're in. And when you said that about your Spotify earnings, I had posted and I realized that uh the more I learned it's so funny because I was late diagnosed with ADHD because they're like you can't possibly have ADHD you're so smart I'm like yes I was doing algebra in first grade I also would regularly come home wearing other children's jackets because I knew you had to wear a jacket home was I paying attention to which one absolutely not um like and so things like that where I'm like did no one notice that something was just a little zhuzhy like there was a little there was something yeah Um, And then the more I learn about like kind of the crossover with autism spectrum, because there are certain things that I just don't have at all on the spectrum. And then there are other things where I'm just like, oh yeah, I thought that was a, I thought that was an ADHD. Oh, was that part of the overlap Venn diagram? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and one of those is um, my sense of humor (laughs) uh, in that I tend to mirror a lot with my humor because I realized that uh, I sometimes will say things I find extremely funny and layered and, and other people don't think I'm making a joke. 
So I posted on my social saying, um, because on social media, we need to portray ourselves with an air of success. I'm here to disclose that I received $6.04 from Spotify for my music. (laughs) (laughs) I said it, right? I said it as like, just joking about, you know, like how we portray ourselves on social media, how completely borked the music industry is, all these things. But people took it seriously. Like people were like, that's so amazing. Like I lost money on my music. And I was just like, oh no. Oh, I, was no. Like, like, I mean, one, it made me feel terrible because then I got to have a whole bunch of people on the thread that like are clearly doing like just spiraling. Um, but also I was like, <laughs> I was like, this shows me even more about how we treat musicians, that people thought this was in earnest, like that we're hyping up $6. Oh, no. The bar (laughs) is in hell. The bar (laughs) is beneath the earth. (laughs) It is. Yeah. And what you pointed out, especially about like that you create a a valuable thing for people and that's the thing is you can sense that value in people's emotional response and in the things that they say to you and like stuff like that and it's like that's all well and good how do we transfer that energy into um like a currency one might say money (laughs) one Um, could say that government issued credits (laughs) and like it's just it's so frustrating to hear that because it's like I'm sure that there are going to be other things that you're going to explore because you just cracked open a whole world. Um, but it's also a huge bummer that we don't get valued for making music. Yeah. And I've never been able to understand that there's a, there's there may be a nuance here that where, like you said, you kind of get put on this pedestal in terms of like the emotional response but in the same breath, they'll sort of take it away being like, oh, can I download that? It's like on, on Spotify. Yes, you can download it for free. Wow, this song is amazing. I want to play it at my wedding. Is it on Spotify? Like not Bandcamp, not, you know, can I buy it off? of? Like there's sort of, it's this implied freeness. Yes. To the point where I actually put a song on Bandcamp the other day. And it was the first time I had done that in like a decade. And then I felt bad doing it. I felt bad that I, w- I was like, I am keeping people from this song. I'm keeping people from it by not putting it on Spotify and offering them the convenience of adding it to a playlist that they want by asking them to pay, you know, a dollar or whatever. And then when people started to pay me for it, I cried. I broke down sobbing I was watching Love Island eating chicken noodle soup and I started to spontaneously sob with this like mouthful of noodles <laughs> on the couch my partner was like what is going on <laughs> like, partner was like they have finally lost it are they okay yep. like <laughs> for sure I was like a pageant mom like it was this immediate like <laughs> zero to 60 sobbing and I wasn't it wasn't a sad cry it was like a happy cry but I also realized in that moment that like nobody had paid me for my art in like such a long time and how uh, how unusual that is that feels like singular in my mind that like we are in this industry where this is like the accepted 
norm. And I'm not the only, like everybody's talking about this because I think we're all like, huh, what a head scratcher. Like, how are we, can we fix this? And then, and then as usual, people are just messing it up because we are such extreme beings. And we're like, well, I don't know, but I became a millionaire from an NFT about you know <laughs> a year ago. It's like, great. Okay. So again, there's sort of this like no middle ground. Like that was what happened when the pandemic hit. I think the middle class, the middle ground, like evaporated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You get heavier or you get have naughtier, but you can't just be kind of coasting in a sustainable way. The sustainability is moot at this point. That's yes. Like, oh, I was like so many trains of thought all colliding in my head, <laughs> like some sort of horrible morality metaphor. Um, but it's like, <laughs> street cars. Like, when do I have to run over? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> all, um, but yeah, like the that division of the have and the have nots, I've definitely seen that in, in music and just talking to so many people during this, that it's like, and it's almost um, like, there's not really a pattern to it. Obviously there are the patterns of, for instance, like historical societal privilege, like that, that one's pretty obvious, but it's like, there's other things that just are kind of, and I don't know how to describe it other than random, where it's like something just strikes the mood it just happens to like there's something that it just captures whatever that like moment was and so like you said like someone becoming like a millionaire through nfts or like something like that it's just like there's these random blips and it's like i've noticed that in the arts especially where it's like there's no it's not like oh you've worked on this like you said like you've worked on this for this amount of time you've put in this amount of effort you've done this thing and then thing happens it's like, it, it seems like it's become increasingly like random during this time, but it creates this division of the have and the have nots. And it's, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very strange. I've talked to people who've been, I don't know how to describe it. Like it's a very antiquated term, but like nouveau riche where it's like, and I don't mean that in like a way that then they're ostentatious about it, but it's like people who have come into money through the arts during this time have this almost like shame where they're like, but I actually did well. And they're like, I mean, I meant to do well and that I put something out that I was proud of, but like, ah, and then there's other people who have the opposite experience where it's like, they're like, I did the exact same kind of thing that this person did. And it, it, it happened the opposite. And I want to, uh, goodbye. I would like to abscond from society. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so strange. And like, when you were talking about like writing, like sync music and TV music and stuff like that, like. I at least conceptualize that as like when I have talked to other like working musicians that used to be at least like kind of that middle lane, kind of the like you're 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 chilling, you're making stuff and you're you're making money for it. And it's like, how did that lane feel? And did that lane not like super resonate with you or did it resonate with you or like, yeah. It absolutely resonated. And for the most part, it was good, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the grand scheme of sync it is a really good way to actually monetize your music and the brilliant thing about it is that the pie piece that everyone's fighting over 
is enormous. So there isn't that feeling of scarcity that we all have when we're trying to get signed to our dream label or land our dream tour or yada, yada, yada. Because especially during the pandemic, like the content didn't slow down. It in fact ramped up. So there's always someone looking to place a particular type of song and a particular type of show. And that's great. I think there's even though, and this is just coming from like, mm, this is the cynic in me speaking now. There's something about giving, you know, 30 to 50% of the revenue of that song to the middleman, which still feels, um, this feels risky to say, but it feels a bit predatory. Like this is sort of a a difficult thing because you are going to get taxed on that income and you're also giving a huge chunk of it away. So it's sort of like to draw the parallel again to the banker who gets, you know, all the regular deductions off of their pay stub and they, they pay their, their taxes, but those deductions are not like 50 to you know 50 plus percent that's like a lot a lot Mm -hmm. and that's it's interesting thinking about like sync especially because occasionally music supervisors will reach out individually to artists but a lot of music supervisors don't and I think for I understand why they don't because they're like if you don't have kind of your your legal stuff in order for ownership of a song that can then like screw over the music supervisor so I get why they don't want to do that um, and then like the kind of middle, like the, the sync agencies, I get that they have to be compensated for their work of like going through all the briefs and things like that. But like you said, it's like, is 50% like, like, it, yeah, that's, you know, it's like, I think of like what fraction of it, like what is a fair percent? And like, I was talking to one of um like in my, in my therapy practice, I have associates and we do split fees but over time there's like gets bigger and bigger. And then once they're licensed, like it gets pretty big, mm-hmm. but the fee that I take is because I do like the bookkeeping and the payroll and the client outreach and I maintain the website. And it's like, so that's what it's paying for. But for instance, like I wouldn't continue to take that much, especially when I'm not like doing supervision once they're licensed. Cause if I'm supervising their cases, that actually is my clinical time. So I'm like, okay, but I'm like, I do my best to think like, what's a fair split to compensate my time for doing these things while respecting the work that this other person is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, like 50% sync fees. Like I see those a lot and I'm just like, is that, are you doing 50% of the work? Yeah. Like master like, and pub. Yeah. I'm like, maybe you're doing like 25 or 30%, like, cause you are putting in a lot of work to interface with supervisors and manage the cues and everything that is work. And I respect that. I don't know if it's 50% of the work though. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I was in a band that made $40,000 one year and we spent $41,000, you know, it's pretty incredible what the costs of doing business are in the music industry and I say that I I regard that with like from a technical lens because I was on a pretty steep learning curve transitioning to doing more sync and composition work at the start of the pandemic and so I was sort of thrown into this deep end of like okay so what does all this stuff actually mean and we all think about sync from a broad perspective of like it's a really great way to make money and it is a really great way to make money but it's also much less, I think, creative in a way, because 
to go fully down that road, it means committing yourself to, and I did do this for like a year, pounding the pavement, cold emailing music supervisors, really, really hustling, getting all your one-stop agreements, getting all of your splits and your metadata in, sending out the playlists and following up and going on IMDB and scouring, like, you know, I did the thing. Yes. And it's, and then toward the end, if you don't see returns, you start to think like, okay, I guess I got to write some selling sunset tunes. I guess I got to write some songs that are like, my st- stiletto heels and my, you know, boss, bitch, girl, boss, gas. Like, like <laughs> obviously this is not yeah. a good thing for me to do because <laughs> I think my very favorite uh, cue that frequently comes in is emotional and loving, but not romantic, but cinematic. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like I always, and then it's like a, freaking Keith Urban song that they <laughs> to go with. Seriously, I'm just like, so you want like a perfume ad? Like just whatever that sounds like? Is that what you want? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, what, you, what does that mean? <laughs> Absolutely. I had one that was like, do a Rufus Wainwright kind of song and I was like great and so I did a Rufus Wainwright kind of song and then what they ended up going with was a children's choir <laughs> the things are not the same <laughs> they're not the same but it's sort of like trying to time the stock market when you're trying to kind of think one step ahead of what's actually going on. Yes. It's very, very easy to err and like make missteps. And then you kind of might, one might sit there surrounded by 30 songs that they don't really like that don't fulfill them and go, how did I get so far away from the thing that I originally came here to do? Yeah. And then you think about capitalism and you think about like, you know, life and how life is short and we shouldn't be spending all of our time perpetuating this system of oppression that keeps us all ground like cogs in a wheel and yada, yada, yada. You know what I'm saying? And then the spiral. And then the spiral. Yeah. And then somebody really nice goes, hey, do you want to have a conversation on why not both? And I go, I don't know how this is going to go today. (laughs) You're like, how do, how do person... And in good news, your your host is in a very similar position and was uh, like accosted by leaf blowers for about an hour apropos of little. <laughs> How very dare they? <laughs> I'm like, Ugh. yeah, like the whole thing about like, how did I get to this place of having 30 songs that are not even me? Um, that's what I find horrifying about the sync world is I, I have talked to other artists who have said that. Um, and I too have written songs, like thankfully not 30. I wrote a few, I think like five or seven and was like, oh, this way lies terror. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, even though I could apply my skills in that direction, I was like, oh, I don't think this is good. Um, and so I kind of went really hard on making things that just sounded like how I wanted them to sound. And what's really interesting is I was talking to a sync rep yesterday um, and she was just like, you know, we always really liked your old stuff, but we, I, and she said, quite honestly, she's like, I found myself like not like pitching it that often. She was just like, but these new songs you sent me, like whatever you've been doing these last few years, she was like, 
who have you been working with? Like this production is just like so amazing. And like it really leveled up. And she's like, I feel like we don't always get like calls for this. Like this is definitely very like ethereal and like she's like very magical sounding. She's just like, you've really gone hard on your sound and now you have a very specific sound. But she's like, who are you working with? And I was just like, oh, that's what happened when I got trapped inside like alone. Mm-hmm. I was like, that, that was just me. Like I gave up trying to sound like other people and just went with like, I don't know, like 70 distorted whale songs <laughs> layered on top of each other <laughs> like, sounds like, beautiful I do that now like as a joke with my mixer I put a whale sound in every song like just because now <laughs> it's, it's like, sort what? of like your Jason Derulo <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> oh my god I have to tell him that he's gonna be like I hate you <laughs> Oh my god. But yeah, it was fascinating to hear that like she was more excited to like pitch the stuff that sounded almost like not like the other stuff. It sounded very purely me because even though she's like, even though that's not what we get all the time, she's like, it's not like the kind of like target ad music that they get requested. She's like, when we do get something for like like witchy, magical, like all that stuff, she's like, now I know, like that's that's where we're pitching you. That is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it so fascinating that that. Uh, was completely against what the advice is which is usually like right to cue and like try these different styles and like sound like Rufus Wainwright that's actually a child's choir (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was so it was kind of fascinating and like I don't know like what'll happen next with my songs um in that way I feel like when you said that you know this has been the thing you've been invested in like emotionally and just time-wise and like it sounds like identity-wise like I feel fortunate that there were other things that I was drawn towards but I'm so curious what it would be like now to be like oh there's other things like what are things that have kind of like I guess that kind of like caught your eye or are you in the experience of just kind of just kind of vibing well a couple things I've always found I don't know if you relate to this as a neurodivergent person but I've always found my personality to be quite polarizing. I was definitely not a popular kid. I was, I was bullied actually quite a bit, but as an adult, at least there was this real feeling of like, wow, people are really into whatever I'm putting out there or they're really not. And there's sort of no in between to that, which I think is not a bad thing to have in a music career that sort of uh, immediate impact, be it good or bad. Like, yes, you know, um, I sort of fell ass backwards into like a small, medium sized TikTok following during the pandemic as well, which was completely divorced from the angst of Instagram, which is like yes. the ultimate sort of, as you were saying earlier, sort of success faced, uh, facing uh, social media platform. Um, And Facebook is just like basically a scary alt-right newsletter online at this point. It's like a weird wasteland. It's a weird wasteland. Yeah. Good things go to die. So TikTok (laughs) felt like this beautiful, messy kid sibling to the other social media platforms. And I took to it very organically, not really talking about music at all. And now I'm in this place of going like, oh my God, I love, I love 
content creation. And this does feel like it's 2022. Like, let's be real. This is a job now. Like it's a thing that people do. Yeah. So just actually just a week ago, I started a YouTube channel, like following sort of the rolling success of the TikTok thing. Um, It's called Neurodivergent Living. And it is about, it's sort of a, a radically transparent look at living with ADHD, autism, and OCD, because there's a lot of quirky fun things that you get up to with those comorbidities. Um, And it's sort of specifically tailored to cooking because Mm. a lot of my TikToks that have anything to do with like safe foods would really, really take off as people, you know, when you're like hyper fixating on a particular meal and it's all you want to eat for like a week or a month or a year, and then you lose your taste for that thing, maybe you get the ick. And then without another craving to replace it, all of a sudden the eating patterns get what I realized were quite universally similar. Like we go for foods that increase dopamine, things that are crunchy, things that are sweet, things that are carby or dairy. And, you know, if you, if you can have either of those. So, yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that for a long time and Obviously, I'm also Jewish, so my digestion is terrible. <laughs> it's just lactose intolerance and low FODMAP <laughs> this and, you know, like IBS. It's been, it's been a... <laughs> I joke that it's our curse for being so hot and funny. <laughs> I think so. You know, we can't the, have it all. <laughs> the Lord taketh and giveth away. Got to humble us somehow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like... This, this is our penance. I'm like, this is what we get for all the charisma and intelligence and all of that. It's just, we cannot digest things remotely. Pretty much anything. Yeah. Just, nope. Yeah. So that with like specific food preferences creates like a pretty narrow spectrum of like edible stuff. Yes. And when the executive dysfunction hits, it's also quite hard to like even get into the kitchen to like make this stuff. And, you know, most people have feelings about like wasting food. And yet sometimes when you go to the grocery store without a list and, you know, you get that energy demon taking over, you come home and you're like, what did I buy? Yes. You're like, what? do any of these make meals? Do I even know what meals are? What happened? Yeah, the answer is always no. And so I made a YouTube channel because I was like, this is, I know about this. Like I've been, I've been thinking about this for so long. And so I'm having a really good time because there are a lot of skills that you get with music production that are actually transferable to like video editing. Yeah. And my career in voiceover is also lending itself decently to this whenever there's, you know, off camera talking thing that happens. Um, so yeah, I'm having a really great time and it is not, it doesn't have anything to do with music and it doesn't really have anything to do with money. And it's probably the first time outside of like Wikipedia holes, hyperfixations and TV shows that I'm binging that I've had an actual interest in a hobby that feels novel and yeah, I don't know, sustainable. Well, and also it can go so many different directions that I'm like, just in case the dopamine wears off on part of it, it'll Mm -hmm. probably spark on another part of it. And also it sounds like it connects you with other people, like, which is really cool because when you're talking about that, I can totally see why, like one, I love TikTok because it is like basically the messy internet of my like adolescence. And I'm just like, oh, this is great. 
this is what I liked about the internet. Um, like, <laughs> this is the fun bit. Um, and the things you're talking about are things that other people would want to learn about and to feel that resonance and also to learn how to deal with those things because I, I call it the uh, the no cooking, just eat. Yes. When like, I don't understand really, frankly, unless I'm cooking for someone else um, or there's like a, a time element to it where it's like an activity, I don't really understand how to plan to like, make food before I'm ready to eat food but at that point it's too late for them late (laughs) oh yeah um so I have certainly devised like one of my one of my old students when I was tutoring called them like squirrel meals where it's like I'm like (laughs) I figured out like different permutations of things you can just like fling together um and there is a meal um And yeah, like, I think that more people could use that, especially like, I feel really fortunate that like some of my textural stuff, um, like I still haven't conquered really all mushrooms. Same. I try every few years. I like the taste. Like I like like truffle oil or I like them like real chopped up, but the texture is just so unpredictable. No, mushrooms are for neurotypical people. Let's be real. That's like my final frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, like, but I'm thankful that like a lot of my texture stuff has to do with like fabrics and things like that. Cause I do know some people that have extreme like food sensitivities and like no, no textures. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially when you said the thing about like crunchy foods and things like that, I was just like, mm. crunchy foods and bubbly water. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the 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 way yeah I crave connecting with people I think I really really do and I used to write these songs that were like I need to open a vein you know I was really trying to have a lot of specificity and a lot of candor because I thought you know the realer this is the more somebody will resonate with it and I just want somebody to resonate I wanted to I think be a mirror that I could, that could like be something that people saw themselves in, but because I really didn't know who I was and was really in denial about a lot of things about myself, I don't think that that was actually working for a really long time. And then of course, you know, Jewish trauma, obviously I'm hilarious. So then it would swing into the other sort of like, sometimes when I get off stage, people would come up and be like, okay, but you do stand up too, right? like based off of the banter I was like no did you did you write what you were gonna say beforehand no like no I'm just I'm just traumatized it's fine like (laughs) pretty much (laughs) I'm like I think finally I'm zeroing in on the sweet spot between being funny and like bypassing the hard stuff and being like overly heavy and sort of creating something that honestly is in a world that many people really want to visit in because that's kind of the flip side of being like like overly sharesy sometimes well and it's strange learning that balance like I think of even one of my favorite things that Tori Amos would do in concert is that she'd be singing these extraordinary gut-wrenching songs and then like in between would be like telling stories in like silly bunny voices. 
I'm like, I really like that. Um, but also like looking back on it, some of my other friends that I remember like seeing her with were like unnerved by that. Um, and also like, I wonder sometimes if it is, I don't know how to put it other than it's like that people who are assigned female at birth or present female, like somehow have to have like maybe one or two personality traits and that's about it. And so if like yep. you have more than that, people are like, you have gone above your allotted quantity of personality traits that we can <laughs> we can actually parse. You can't be disturbed and funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> so true. And I think you also have to be careful when the thing that you have decided you want to communicate about is pain related because everybody reacts to pain in like super unique ways. So yeah. it's sort of like a risky... Well, you just have to find your people. And once you find your people, I think it, it it can really, really feel like home. But you just see sometimes how easy it is for those who are like, oh, my brand is like really confident or like yeah. empowerment or like breezy kind of like summertime. She, like there's lots of different ways that people will present in the world on social media, in their arts practices. Um, and the people that are like, I'm going to go for pain. That's my vibe. <laughs> like... They are, they're kind of like the, the dark horse middle child of the annals of history. You know, like we know who they are. We look back and we're like, okay, so it's Van Gogh and uh -huh. it's Frida Kahlo. And I'm like, of course it's like painters are like the media. That's the medium that like jumps out at me. The I don't know, like PJ Harvey, like. Yeah. And it's hard. I don't know if you feel this way, but it's like, even though sometimes I do write from that place, I don't want to commit to that all the time. I don't feel that way all the time. Mm hmm. I, I feel that way all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I do not relate in pain currently. <laughs> Everything bad, only darkness. <laughs> I think writing from a place of happiness or abundance was a real challenge that I was only able to meet after the diagnosis that was like the first time that I was like oh, wow. oh my god I'm so stoked like I did I had this um I have this music project called Gay Hollywood that is recent I'm going to put out an EP in 2022 and all of the music from that is quite celebratory actually wow it's like really really great that that was able to happen as soon as there started to become some integration but I think when there when we have like splits internal splits and people have so many of them and we obviously don't like to look at them but like when you're able to have a moment of like integration then I think it can be um it can be a, a real lightening experience yes oh my gosh talking to a friend of mine he was just like it's like I've collected all the chaos emeralds <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> And chaos, the chaos, the pain, it looks so bad when it's disparate and floating around in sort of a, a, a halo almost. Mm -hmm. Once it's collected and you get to look at it, it's like, oh, this look, look at this little guy. <laughs> and then and then maybe some compassion can come in and you can go like, oh, like, look at you. You've just been trying so hard. And it was such a little scrambled egg dish there. but. But I love you anyway. Like, you know, that that's where yes. the empathy can finally come in. Yeah, when it shifts into view, like how you spoke of when you then kind of like 
yeah, like with diagnosis, it's like your life flashes before your eyes and everything. It's like watching all the pieces kind of fall into place in like a sixth sensey way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and you're like, oh. And then that is where the compassion starts because like you said, where you're, you know, if you didn't actually feel that abundant joy because you were like, what well, there is something that is not clicking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. To my neurodivergent adolescent mind, the world didn't make a lick of sense. And so I was getting a lot of information as we all are as like input and, but none of it kind of lined up with itself. And then doctors would say like, well, you have a confusing halo of symptoms. Like they would kind of not know what to do with me. And it all was signaling to me that nothing makes sense. And I don't make sense. And like something may not be right but it's clearly not worthy of like further investigation because the people that are in charge of that are not investigating and they're not curious so I shouldn't be curious either well and that whole idea of like that something something is up but that it's not worthy of investigation or potentially aid or accommodation like so much of what we used to know about neurodivergence was based on um boys Yes, cis white boys. And so if you presented in any way other than a cis white boy. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a TikTok that I saw was like, so were you a manic pixie dream girl? <laughs> a neurodivergent bisexual. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. It was very much that where it's like, I resonate very much with what you said and that like people did clearly pick up that something was like different, but it wasn't different in a way that say like someone could like help me. It was like the meme of like the high five as you're drowning, um, Mm -hmm. where it was just like, cool, good job. And you're like, wait, what? What?" (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. And that it's like, you know, hearing you talk about like your the TikTok and the YouTube I'm like I'm so glad you're making that so that other people don't just get the high five as they're drowning <laughs> they maybe not you get like a pull up onto the raft <laughs> like, <laughs> like that'd be cool yeah I felt the same way where it's like it was like oh you know even just looking back it's funny I don't know what experiences you've had that you look back on that you're like that makes so much more sense now but like things like why can't you just try harder? You clearly understand this thing. And like explaining that like boredom or understimulation was like physically uncomfortable. I remember trying to describe it to like my parents, my teacher at one point, because I just could not do like repetitive math homework. Like if I already understood the concept, I could, I just, and I described it. I was just like, no, it's itchy inside. It feels itchy, bad inside. Like I didn't know how to describe it as a kid, but it's like, what I was describing was like a horrible dopamine deficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, but like trying to describe that and they're just like, oh, you're, you know, you're being stubborn or you're this or you're that. And it's like, I don't want to like be defiant of you. I probably actually want to please you a lot. Yeah. But like this external thing is not matching the internal thing. And when I describe the internal thing, you don't have a metric for it. So I then assume the internal thing must just be like wonky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Because the adults and the teachers around us were sort of the powers that be growing up. So you kind yeah. of, you defer to them. It wasn't until my partner very diplomatically was like, Hey, do you want to watch a YouTube about 
uh, somebody with autism and see if it resonates? And I was like, no, you know, and like a year later, you know, I started to um, kind of come, like warm up to the idea. And then it took like another probably nine months to get the diagnosis. But then there was the process of like telling my mom and my mom being like, no, you know, like there were, I, she didn't know anything about autism beyond like the cis white young like nine-year-old boy criteria she has since been great she's like read books and listened to podcasts and been on websites and what she got tiktok and she's like watching tiktok and all this stuff and she's like really stepped up and now when we talk on the phone sometimes she'll be like the way that you couldn't wear socks where the seam was on the toes she was like you would have these freakouts about that and i'm like thank you because i would tell her i'd be like i'm looking at my life right now and i have all these memories and she'd be like i that's not enough like i don't think that's an autistic thing you know like i yep <laughs> your face right now is i was just like ah yes my nemesis tights mhm um, the seams. Uh, well, and also like, I'm very, very, very short. Like I'm barely five feet tall as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tights would come up really high and then the seam would be like on my abdomen, like up to like my chest. Gross. Ah, jeans. Mm. And like, I remember it's, it's so interesting. I'm glad that your, your mom has like come around because my mom is still, I think a bit in denial about some of this stuff because she's like, but all kids have preferences. Right. Your teacher said you were a joy to have in class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just like, was it a preference? I was just like, did my sister break down sobbing if you put the wrong clothes on her? Like I, I would just, apparently I would just pitifully cry. <laughs> like, and there are still pictures. I remember this because at my sister's bat mitzvah, I would not wear tights. I was wearing like little socks with like my cute little shoes. But like my sister got mad at me because she wanted me to wear tights like her. Um, and so I was glad that my mom did stand up for me in that situation and say like, but Pam doesn't like tights. Um, but she knew I didn't like tights because I just, after a while wearing them, I would start to just silently cry. Like I would just like not be able to handle the sensation. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that you cried silently is super interesting to me because I have silent panic attacks. And I wonder if that's like a thing that when you're a kid and you start having this big reaction, you learn to do that to sort of like take care of the adults around you or something. Yeah, because I knew that if like I threw a tantrum about it, it would be like perceived as like I was angry about something or like I said, like that defiant or stubborn that like people perceive people as neurodivergent as like, I don't know, just doing it because we want to do it our own way. And I'm just like, why do you think I'd arbitrarily want to do it this way? It's because it causes me distress, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's not like I suddenly decided I have a vendetta against tights. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, she would know that like, cause I, and she'd be like, uh, <laughs> 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 the child is broken. Um, and like, I'd be like, I don't like the tights. I don't like the tights. Like, I'd just be like, ah. <laughs> so she was just like, okay, I don't want you to like have this kind of experience because that would probably actually be very distracting at your sister's bat mitzvah. Mm. So just wear socks, wear the socks right. you're familiar with that you like. Cause I like, they were seamless and they had a ruffle at the top. So we navigated the whole seam issue. 
when you said your little socks, those are the exact socks I pictured. I have to say the ones. Good socks. Good socks. Good socks. And so, yeah. And it's like, now I understand what that is because it continued into adulthood. Like I was shopping with my mom and I was wearing this particular dress and she's like, well, why don't you try shapewear under it? And I was like, what kind of demonic thing does that sound like? Um, So to like, to appease her, I tried on a pair of Spanx, which I had never worn before nor since. I had them on my body for, I would guess anywhere from three to five minutes rage it, it was like the tights rage like the seams rage but now I knew what it was because I'm an adult and so I didn't have to silent cry I just literally looked at her and I was like this makes me angry and she was like the underwear you put on makes you angry and I was like this makes me very upset and she's like you look like a Kardashian I was like I am an angry Kardashian <laughs> I was like I was like get me out of this <laughs> like <laughs> And she's like, I respect it. She's just like, do you want me to buy them just in case? I was like, no, 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 no. I never want to put this on my body again. (laughs) No. (laughs) So yeah, I think like, I would, I would love to see the material that you put out in the world. And I'd love to share it with more people because I think especially like people like my mom, she does have a very hard time connecting with it. And I don't think it's out of uh, lack of compassion. It's just like, it's so hard for her to put herself in that position. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, I think it could be helpful for like, I'm like, frankly, probably also other parents and friends and relatives of people who are neurodivergent to be like, see, this is this experience. Yeah, I think that's such a valuable thing. It's like we need more roads leading to examples of this thing because it's a spectrum. Everybody yeah. on it is different. I have a cousin who was diagnosed with Asperger's as a kid. And I think that's one of the reasons I got missed because he and I are so different. And yes. yeah, so, I was, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to have like a little bit more visibility, just like a slice, because <sighs> it doesn't matter how you come to the information, like however you find your way in is, you know, it's TikTok or it's YouTube or it's your neighbor's best friend's cousin's dog. I don't know. Like we've all got ways that we, <laughs> that we broaden, that we broaden our awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, we are definitely in the same genetic pool because I too have a cousin who was diagnosed with Asperger's and same thing where like, he's my fave cousin. We get along super well. Everyone else in the family is like, why do you vibe so much? And we're just like, (laughs) um, but like same thing where he and I do present very differently. And frankly, like for a while you couldn't diagnose ADHD and autism concurrently, even though now they have discovered there's about a 60 to 80% overlap. And I'm like, surprise none of us were surprised. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But because of the difference in our presentation, like he does present pretty classically, I would say as like a cis male. And so it looks Mm -hmm. really different than how, how I present. And there's another cousin above him, same thing. Like you can see straight down the line. And then like, my dad is like, my dad's pretty straight up ADHD, like has a few little spectrumy things just sprinkled in for fun. But like, you can see like the the line but I'm the first like I'm the first assigned female at birth and I am cis and it's like that yeah it's like that line they were just like oh you can't possibly be this you're a girl (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, ah. I'm starting to wonder if the majority of people in the world are neurodivergent and holistic folks are maybe the minority, despite the fact that we live in an holistic centered like system right now. There's so like so many people. It's like the secondary pandemic is like people getting diagnosed with ADHD and autism. And so it's, it's, I think, yeah, it's, we all have this idea of what it looks like. And I think that idea is going to be changing very rapidly over the next few years. I feel like we're discovering that there's just more variance than we had assumed mm-hmm. and that that's a good thing. But I think you're right that for whatever reason, the holistic system, at least for the last, like, you know, bit of this era, I'm like, I don't know. Cause I think about like, when, when would neurodiversity have come in actually pretty handy? And I'm like, well, frankly, for most other eras of history, you actually would have really benefited from having people with lots of different min maxes. Um, it's really like, I'm like, was it like industrialism? I'm now I'm really curious to like trace back to like, where did it happen that then like holistic norms became the norms? I 100% blame the industrialist industrialism kind of era yeah think about think about somebody with ADHD hunting and gathering like foraging for berries you yeah like yeah maybe you wouldn't you know remember to bathe for a few days but you would know where every berry was across the land oh yeah oh yeah like we're occasionally stinky but we're very good at that Uh, I'm like oh yeah I can tell you where the paper clip is in the house it's like in the third drawer down in the kitchen like in the middle console like I know exactly where that is do I know where my keys are no No. but like I call it the finding the afikoman skill (laughs) (laughs) is it hidden in plain sight I got this yeah like like yeah like because there's so many there's like beauty in the diversity of how we encounter the world and the fact that people perceive it as a problem and even it being framed as a disability is only because we do live in an holistic society um at least in my view I'm just like if we lived in a society that actually accommodated people and valued a variety of experiences maybe things would go better yeah um, yeah 100 percent. everybody I know who's neurodivergent has like a magic brain yeah that I just want to take a bath in like I love it so much and yeah you <laughs> yes. see a lot of TikToks where people are like it's like neurodivergent people making small talk at parties to like an holistic person and you could just like it it's like nails on a chalkboard it's like so how's Brad how are the kids work is good and then in the next scene they're talking to like another neurodivergent pe- person and they're like okay so the thing about blimps is <laughs> <laughs> oh. like at the top when you were like spanish influenza i was like yes yes that's the thing <laughs> <Yes>. the pyramids <laughs> someone um someone tweeted saying that like small talk is what we do for the neurotypicals to let them know that we are no threat and we are not about to eat them. hundred <laughs> percent. And also I read recently that info dumping is considered a love language. And that is such a funny thing because it's definitely like, if I love you, like for sure, I'm going to be telling you like, 
everything about the like mind map that I've created about, you know, subject A, B, or C. But then there's also this other thing where you kind of learn growing up that that's not a cool thing to do. So there's like a little bit of hesitancy, like, yes. yeah. Well, that's, it's so interesting because like during this time, like part of the whole, like being perceived and not being perceived, I feel like that's, you know, when you said like the second pandemic, I feel like that is why people are learning more even about their own neurodivergence is that like, um, you don't have to mask if there's no one else around. Uh, but that also means that then you're forced to figure out like what, what actually is under there. Um, and it's uncomfortable at first to do the things that we actually naturally would want to do because either we've been rejected for it. We've been subtly shamed for it. It hasn't been modeled for us. So we're just like, is this okay? Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you have like RSD, like rejection sensitivity dysphoria, I think it's, it stands for. Oh yes. That can really, really make it hard. And, you know, so then uh, sometimes being subtly shamed can feel like being overtly shamed or being overtly shamed can feel like getting kicked in the teeth, you know? So yes. I, uh, it's so funny. Cause like, I will share with you like after the podcast, but I started a group called galaxy brains where it's like every month I just put out like a different module about like ADHD and neurodivergent experience stuff. So it's more like, here's how to learn about it. I haven't written as much about autism because like, that's not really my base of like super knowledge. Um, so it's more focused on ADHD stuff, but one of the things that I wrote about like this month's module is literally about RSD it's about like managing the emotions of RSD because even sometimes people with like the best of intentions that we love and adore can accidentally spark our RSD. Um, and so it's about like learning how to deal with it. But, uh, the, the catchphrase that I use for it is literally just like big ouch, big ouch. Cause like, I'll know logically that what someone has said or done, whatever it is, I've perceived that it's rejection, but like, I know logically that it's probably not rejection, but I still feel like I've been run over by a pack of gazelles. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, I don't have a feeling. Okay. That's a big ouch. Okay. I know that feelings are finite. So I know this will pass and then I can better evaluate the situation. But in the meantime, big ouch. (laughs) (laughs) And then to be in the music industry. The music industry is like one long running big ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Low key, constant rejection sort of thing, you know, like. You might get a gig, but then in your inbox, there's also like three emails that are like, it's a no for me, dog. And it's very interesting to um, like look back on my career and be like, huh, okay. Like there are a lot of moments I think where I, I go like, I'm impressed that I did all that. I am high key impressed and proud that knowing what I know about myself now, I did all that. Yeah, you you did it. Really cool. Yeah. I was going to say, like, looking back through the lenses that you have now, like, I'm like, celebrate those victories because they were hard won. 
<laughs> I think that's why I said I was medium doing music, because if you asked me two years ago, I would have been like, I'm garbage. It's nothing. I haven't done a single thing, which is like what every that's what everybody thinks. Well, actually, I was learning today that uh, imposter syndrome, perfectionism and urgency are like all pillars of white supremacy, which is something that affects us all. And definitely that's like one of the most prevalent things in the culture that's like sort of always happening in the background it's very toxic yes Mm -hmm. yes I was like oh my god I could talk to you for like 17 hours um (laughs) but we'll keep in touch (laughs) yes I was like in the meantime thank you for your time (laughs) yes thanks for having me it was really nice to chat with you about all the stuff that we talked about Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode. Oh, <laughs>